You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, listeners. Um, it's Marissa here. We are taking a week off. Um, we're busy writing and recording upcoming content. And so we are releasing an old episode from one of our former projects. It was written by me, Marissa, and recorded by Sarah Hanley-Cousins and myself. And it's about tuberculosis and fashion. So if you haven't heard it yet, please listen and enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. There are two ways of understanding disease, illness, and health in history. One is the actual medical reality of disease, uh, what it does to the body and how it affects, obviously, one's health. But another way of understanding disease is the way that culture attempts to depict or grapple with the medical reality of a disease. In other words, the cultural reflections of that disease. One such example of this is the white plague, otherwise known as tuberculosis. Today, we're going to be talking about how tuberculosis was understood culturally in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm Sarah. I'm Marissa. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Tuberculosis is a disease generally of the lungs, but not necessarily limited to the lungs, caused by the mycobacterium tuberculosis. The illness is spread through the air as an infected person coughs or speaks. The disease travels on minuscule droplets of saliva, which are then inhaled by others in the vicinity. 
It can travel really quickly, but it also can hang around for a long time. People have become infected after eight-hour flights with an infected party. Tuberculosis is most commonly associated with a terrible, chronic, and racking cough, often that causes the infected person to cough up blood. This is caused by granulomas, little pockets of the bacillus that live in your lungs. As those granulomas break down, they release the bacteria and create bleeding cavities inside your lungs. Once the tuberculosis is in that phase, if it's left untreated, it will eventually kill you because each of those cavities reduces the amount of healthy lung tissue, making it eventually impossible to breathe. Even if you survive the tuberculosis, you're left with permanently damaged lungs from scar tissue. It's incredibly common in literature and film to see someone appear sick and then cough into a handkerchief and then pull it away and look and oh, there's like this dramatic moment where they see like droplets of blood on the, the handkerchief. It's just it's almost a trope. It's used so often. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a shorthand for tuberculosis. Tuberculosis can take two forms, tuberculosis disease or latent tuberculosis. Tuberculosis disease is when you immediately become ill upon becoming infected. However, it's also possible to become infected but experience no symptoms for weeks, months, or even years. Instead, the disease can lurk in your body and then you can become sick later on down the line. It can also spread beyond the lungs or become extrapulmonary tuberculosis. The disease can cause neck swellings, warp your spine, and infect your genital urinary tract, where it repeats the process that it undertakes in the lungs, creating those bleeding cavities and dying tissue. It really is the stuff of horror movies. During the 19th and early 20th century, tuberculosis was the leading cause of death in the United States. According to writer Thomas Goetz, quote, more than one-third of autopsies performed in the early 1800s found the cause of death to be TB. By the end of the century, in 1890, the Registrar General's returns showed that nearly one half of those who died between 15 and 35 years of age died of consumption. This toll was particularly painful for the nascent life insurance industry. At the British Empire Mutual Life Office, a calculation found that tuberculosis was responsible for more than three quarters of company benefit payments, end quote. So the reason behind all these deaths in the 19th and early 20th century was not entirely clear. In fact, the disease wasn't even called tuberculosis, but as you could hear in that quote from Thomas Goetz, it was often called consumption, indicating the way that the disease seemed to consume the human body. It was also sometimes called phthisis. The disease was so pervasive and so slow moving that it wasn't actually believed to be an infection at all but rather something that stemmed either from within or came from without. Specifically, it either stemmed from the person's innate nature. Uh, Some people were just of a consumptive character, naturally weak, quiet, or sickly. There is also a theory that it came from without, in other words, caused by your climate or your lifestyle. Consumptives tended to be white-collar workers in New England, according to the wisdom of the day. And cold, wet climates were the very worst for consumptives, while dry, warm areas were the very best. This created an association that the Northeast was not very good for your health, while the West was inherently healthful. In fact, cities like Los Angeles and Denver actively marketed themselves as particularly beneficial to one's health. 
and created sort of a cottage industry of housing and attempting to cure consumptives. Um, a friend of the podcast, Jackie Antonovich, um, her dissertation, which she's writing right now, is about female physicians in Denver, and most of them are working on tuberculosis. Not everyone, of course, could pack up and move all the way out west to Los Angeles or Denver. Um, if you couldn't make it that far, and, and many could not, there were sanatoriums all over, particularly in forested areas of high altitude. Uh, an example of this is this the tiny little town um, that I lived in when I was really, really small. It's called Orwell, New York. Um, really, really tiny. It's actually like a hamlet. Like, it's not even really a town. So tiny. <laughs> um, it had on kind of the outskirts of town... A, in in sort of a the kind of carved into this forested area, this big white um, sanatorium, and it was really beautiful. It was called Unity Acres, and I always wondered why there was this big, beautiful. I mean, it's huge building in this town. I could never figure out exactly why what it was doing in this tiny little place, right? And it turns out that it was a tuberculosis sanatorium. Uh, for many, many years of the early 20th century. And now, of course, it is not a tuberculosis <laughs> sanatorium. In fact, now it's a, a home for um, homeless men. Oh. Yeah. Like officially? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's. I don't know if it was init- originally called Unity Acres when it was a sanatorium, oh, but okay. that's what it's called now. Hmm. Because tuberculosis was a white-collar disease, it was associated with the highly educated, the middle to upper class, and white people. Because of this, plus the fact that it was not considered communicable but inherent, it was not a disease that was stigmatized. In fact, it was just the opposite. As we'll discuss soon, it was deeply romanticized. In the 19th century, there existed a romantic, sentimental culture surrounding death called the Good Death. This idea or belief taught that there was an ideal way to die, quietly, calmly, clean, and painless, or at the very least, bearing your pain stoically, surrounded by your family and friends, and accepting your fate. You've had enough time, ideally, to make your peace with those around you, and importantly, to impart some final wisdom. The dying were thought to have a liminal status between heaven and earth, the mortal and the spiritual, and thus were able to impart greater truths. This was incredibly important for those who survived, and if a dying person died a death where those things weren't possible, it could be deeply traumatizing. And this is why the Civil War was very distressing. People were just dying in less than ideal circumstances. Right, without people there to to hear their final words and, and things like that. Right. Tuberculosis was the ideal disease for this. You died very, very slowly. The disease forced you to slow down and rest. It was thought that, according to our professor Eric Seaman, that tuberculosis, quote, winnowed you down to your core, the very essence of your character. It was almost an ideal way of living. It could produce people who were contemplative, focused on the spiritual and intellectual, who died beautiful deaths. It probably will come as no surprise that this all changed when the German physician Robert Koch in 1882 announced that he had discovered the cause of tuberculosis. It was not, in fact, inborn, but rather the cause of a bacilli, which he called the, quote, tubercule bacillus. The disease, he argued, was spread through the sputum, and in an age before germ theory was widely understood by the general public, people believed that it was akin to a parasite which was spread through the saliva, which is really not all that far off base, right? I mean, obviously, a bacteria is not exactly a parasite, but it is, there are some really strong parallels there, yeah, so it does I mean, make some sense. A living thing that's spread from one thing to another. Right, and yeah. that lives off of you and inside of you, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, I should also note here that uh, Coke believed that it was spread through the sputum, which is sort of correct, but not entirely correct. It it uh, it doesn't um, spread through the saliva. It spreads as an aerosol. What's isn't it called aerosolate? I thought that sputum included like boogers and stuff too. Right, mm-hmm. and it, that's not how it's spread. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like lives in your throat and in your voice box, and as you breathe out or speak or cough, it like travels on the air that is expelled that goes that it kind of is connected to the water droplets. So if you right. spit in the street, it's not going with the saliva or if you're making out with someone, it's not going to travel that way. It has to be through the the voice or the cough. Does right. that make sense? Yep. And of course, people did not know that they thought that it traveled through the actual saliva. So what resulted when he, um, when when the news that Coke has discovered that this disease is caused by a bacterium was a really drastic change in the way tuberculosis was culturally understood. It stopped being the romantic disease of upper class consumptives and instead started being the disease of the rabble, immigrants and minorities who lived in crowded, unsanitary conditions in the cities. This is when tuberculosis becomes part of the screenings at Ellis Island as physicians listen to the lungs of incoming immigrants, when social workers flocked into the inner cities to teach poor people um, who were assumed to be filthy and unhygienic how to keep clean homes and take on healthy habits, and when progressive era reforms were undertaken to clean up city streets. A couple of fun facts um, about other cultural changes that happened after this discovery is that it leads to uh, changes in women's fashion. So for decades, women had worn very long skirts. And then suddenly, ankle-length dresses start to become more fashionable as women were afraid of dragging their skirts through the spittle in the streets. Um, men also tended to wear beards less often because they were believed to, to trap sputum and spread or catch disease. It also led to changes in decor, fears that germs could be lurking in the fussy Victorian curtains or overstuffed chairs or carpets leads the way to the use of more hard surfaces like wood. Uh, Our professor, Dr. Seaman, also made the point um, in a lecture that he gave about this, that this is when bathrooms started to become more sterile using easy to clean surfaces like porcelain and tile, which I, I think is really fascinating. We tend to think of disease as as a constant, as a fact, right? It's just like illness is illness, Mm -hmm. um, but it reaches out and has all of these um, implications for the larger culture, which I think is really, really fascinating. Right. One last note here too about how um, the cultural understanding of tuberculosis changes. In the South, tuberculosis was a black disease and one that was especially considered a disease of freedom. White Southerners argued that enslaved people had not suffered from tuberculosis because they had been so well cared for. Now that they were free and impoverished, they were getting sick, proving that they couldn't actually care for themselves, that they were not fit for freedom. Of course, uh, it's more actually of a factor of where and how they were living because of the the overpowering racism of the South that's putting them in positions where they're more likely to get tuberculosis. So it's this vicious cycle of blaming the victim. Right. 
Literary scholars, philosophers, and art historians love to study tuberculosis because of its strong presence in literature, but also because of the development of a tuberculean aesthetic. 18th and 19th century artists, clothing designers, and cosmetic peddlers developed a look that inspired a new standard of beauty. This look, what some scholars call consumptive chic, replicated the symptoms of TB and became a fashion goal for many Victorian women. In 18th century London, some diseases started to seem fashionable, even maybe desirable. J.M. Adair wrote in his Treatise on Fashionable Diseases. Is that really what it's called? Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, quote, people of no rank and slender means presume to intrude in on the province of their superiors by fashionably ruining themselves, their families, and connections. In Marissa's research, she has found some evidence that elites were considered to be so genteel and so refined that their lives collapsed into debauchery. This was a time when gambling was really popular. Elites were using snuff and drinking spirits, powdering their hair, whitening their faces with toxic creams, damaging their bodies with restrictive clothes and hairstyles. A whole host of nervous disorders entered the medical realm, and the most fashionable women were also the most sensitive nervous women. And by nervous, we mean that they were perceived to be mentally, emotionally, and physically so delicate that it was pathologized. These fashionable ladies were perceived to be particularly vulnerable to diseases like childbed fever or tuberculosis. This is the world where tuberculosis first became attractive and fascinating to people. The 18th century was a time when the novel enjoyed new popularity. These new, romantic, sentimental stories about people's lives had many characters who tragically died from TB. It became so common that Clark Lawler, a literary scholar, calls tuberculosis a literary disease. Historian Carolyn Day and art historian Amelia Rouser argue that artists were already beginning to pick up on the attractiveness of the tuberculean body in the 1790s. They write about Thomas Lawrence's portrait of Lady Manners. She appears hunched, feverish, frail, and pale. I just want to add that, you know, this uh, ideal, this romantic sort of um, sickly ideal of consumptive characters continues into the 19th century. There are innumerable literary characters who even if they don't tell you specifically that they're that they have consumption or tuberculosis have that kind of um character right they're like very weak they're very um pale they're they cough all the time uh one of the best examples that i can think of right off the top of my head is beth from little women I don't think it's ever actually stated that Beth has consumption or tuberculosis, but she's just a very sickly character through the whole thing. And it's, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, it's also kind of understood that Beth is better than them, right? She's more moral. She's more connected to the spiritual. And it's because of her sickly character. And she does end up dying at the end of the book. Another re really famous example is Mimi from La Boheme, the the opera La Boheme by Puccini. Um, she's one of the most famous tuberculosis deaths in um, theater and in literature. But that's not written until the end of the 19th century. So you can see how this um, trope continues. Right. Probably as a result of reading literary portrayals of tuberculosis, people began to think that women with TB had contracted the disease because they were so beautiful, pure, and sensitive. Most people believed that outward appearance belied internal character. 
The reality that they usually died young made them even more desirable to observers. So it's the whole, like, only the good die young thing. Right, right, right. Um, they hold a spot in public memory as tender, beautiful souls struck down, you know, in the prime of life. Right, yeah. Um, they were, uh, some people would even describe them as too good to live too perfectly sensitive and too tragically delicate for this world. Exactly. And if I can just pause you for a second, that's mm-hmm. exactly how Beth in Little Women is portrayed. She's right. too good to live. Um, she's so much better than the rest of the sisters in a moral sense. Right. Um, that she just was too good for this world. Right. And this sort of this is sort of fetishizing dying young. And I think that we still sort of do Absolutely. this today. Yeah, yeah. The best example is the 27 Club, which now has, like, tons of people in it. But right. the main people, Kurt Cobain, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and I guess Amy Winehouse. I don't, <laughs> yeah, and I don't it, know how I feel about that. What but. I think is really fascinating, and not to go into, like, a side thing about the 27 Club, but, like, do you notice anything about all those people? Mm, drugs? yeah. Yeah, they, uh, you know, we think of it as they were so artistic and so tapped into something that like their, that their, their physical selves couldn't handle it. But actually, they were all drug abusers or drug addicts. Right. Right. Um, Right. And maybe those two things go together. Right. Like an artistic uh, personality or artistic character makes Mm -hmm. you more, I don't know prone to depression which makes you more prone to drug addiction but there's a fetishization of that um of this dying young when actually they all sort of killed themselves right right i'll probably get hate mail for saying that but <laughs> I, I don't get i don't i don't so get the people fetishization think that courtney that. killed kurt yeah sure um. <laughs> <laughs> so thomas lawrence the artist that painted lady manners the painting that marissa mentioned before in some ways was ahead of his time he seemed in tune with this new burgeoning trend. Day and Rouser argue that he painted Lady Manners with the consumptive chic in mind. He was flattering her by portraying her as delicate, sensitive, and just the kind of fashionable lady that would be prone to TB. Many people were appalled by just how sickly she looked in the portrait. It was not terribly popular, but a few people were excited by the image. People didn't quite get it just yet. It was perhaps a little too avant-garde for most people to understand, but Georgian society was still kind of flirting with this idea of tuberculean chic. In the later part of the 18th century and early part of the 19th century, there was a preoccupation with social sciences. People were intent on solving social ills, such as poverty and illness. It's no accident that Marxism, public sanitation, homeopathy, psychology, etc. developed at this time. As part of this, physicians became fixated on tuberculosis and wrote extensive treatises on how to avoid, diagnose, and treat it. Physicians published somewhat sexualized descriptions of female TB patients. This is not uncommon for medical treatises, but right. to non-medical historians, it might seem very yeah, weird. Like, what, what's sexual about this? It's, it's really common in medical history to see these kinds of descriptions that you're going to tell us about. Um, it's um, even in kind of the um, manuals that are created the artistic manuals anatomy books essentially they feature these like really beautiful these kind of women that you're describing right these like beautiful sort of tragic always very young women who died in the prime of life Mm -hmm. and it's there's always something a little transgressive about kind of opening and entering these young women's bodies as a physician yeah um, so I have one that it was written by Richard Brooks in 1765, quote, 
The slender make of the whole body, a long neck, a flat and narrow thorax, depressed scapulae, the blood of a bright red, thin, sharp, and hot, the skin transparent, very white and fair, with a blooming red in the cheeks, end quote. Another example comes from Thomas Hayes in 1785. He writes, quote, Persons who are most subject to become consumptive are of a delicate make, fair complexion, and florid countenance, soft skin, long necks, narrow chests, prominent shoulders and hips sticking out like wings. Many of the above description have constitutionally weak lungs, but these do not always produce the mischief till colds or some other cause sets them in a flame which ends in separation, hectic fever, ulcers, and consumption. And then there's one last one. It's, it's a shorter one um, written by William May in 1792. He writes, quote, the cheeks being as red as crimson, whilst the rest of the skin is pale and bloodless, end quote. Now, these may not seem overtly sexual to us right now, um, but these descriptions were provocative, lurid, and even borderline pornographic to people at the time. The medical exploitation of the tuberculean woman's body made a clear connection between TB and sexual attractiveness and even promiscuity. So as we said earlier, uh, tuberculosis became fashionable because it was associated with purity, respectability, and sensitivity. But as is often the case, women couldn't win one way or the other in this situation. As the 1800s progressed and the working classes contracted the illness in large numbers, women with tuberculosis were thought to be consumed with desire, in other words, oversexed. So still tragic figures, but in a sort of naughty kind of way. Once again, like many people in that 27 Club. Right. Like you said, you almost think of the 27th Club as glamorous and, you know, they were tortured souls mm-hmm. who just, you know, um, couldn't stay away from drug addiction. and In this and it, tragic way, right? Right. right. Mm-hmm. Even though they were so talented and had so much going for them right. sort of thing. Um, enter the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood was an artistic community formed in London in 1848 by artists William Holman Hunt and John Everett Millay, Um, a poet artist, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and Rossetti's poet siblings, William Michael Rossetti and Christina Rossetti. They held monthly meetings to share their artistic and literary creations. They shared an interest in the historical period before Raphael, so that's before the Renaissance, hence Pre-Raphaelite. That's really... That's, like, really weird. That's a really weird way to phrase it. Like, we're interested in this time period, like, just before Raphael. <laughs> like, who was it? Were there, honestly, though, were there people at the time who were like, oh, yes, that period is very, I I know what you mean, and I see what's what's appealing about it. Right. Well, I'm going to Because explain. to me, I'm like, who, who what, cares? Yeah, like, yeah. what? I don't even know when that is. Right. It's like well, the early the 1400s or something? Right. That's the point. They okay. felt like Raphael's work was a watershed. It was like the beginning of modern. The... So were they just, were they sort of like early hipsters? Like yes. they. Oh my. Okay. Did you read my. No, copy? I didn't. Okay. No, I just. I, I specifically say that. Yes. Oh, okay. So they, they okay. liked Ra- Raphael because he wasn't cool. No, they right? liked what came before him. Oh. so Because it... that wasn't cool. Oh, okay. Raphael. Is it Raphael? Like, Raphael, yeah. Okay, Raphael. like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Yeah. I'm thinking, but he calls it Raphael. Because they call him Raph. Right, well. Okay, continue. Okay, so. <laughs> they felt like Raphael's work was a watershed, the beginning of the modern artistic world. But they were interested in what came before this world, which they were familiar with because they lived in it. 
Um, they wanted to understand the medieval and ancient world. It's aesthetic, it's old languages. They were fascinated by the foreignness of that. So if you think about it, since... Well, so, but tell me, though, when, when was Raphael painting? 15th century. So, like, the early 1400s, before the Renaissance? No, just basically medieval and ancient world. So, literally anything before the Renaissance? Yes, literally. They just dated that as before Raphael. Yes. Ra- Raphael, excuse yes. me. The, and so they're showing that Raphael was... They're, by by calling themselves that, they're giving him this really important place in history as, like, the fulcrum between old yeah. and new. He, it was him it that was caused him. the modern And strangely, world. Raphael, not really that strangely, but he, I, he might have been in the 27 Club. I, I, I'll have to check that, but he died really young Interesting. of um, venereal disease. Yeah, oh. so he's, like, one of those, you know. So he might be an appealing sort of character for artistic yes. types. Yeah, yeah, okay, exactly. I get it. Sort of. Um, so I'll, I'll read these numbers and then you can start after that. Um, and there are four things that um, characterize pre-Raphaelite art. And so these come from art historians. And I'm totally going to geek out because I had an art history minor. I'm kind of into it. But um, here are four things. This is how you can kind of identify something as belonging to the pre-Raphaelite movement. So the first thing is that they crossed media. So their ideas crossed between poetry, song, and painting. They would have this kind of idea or this theme or this subject, and they would depict it in all different ways, in all different media. They also borrowed from many other languages and literary forms, Greek, Icelandic, and Italian poetry, Middle English, and Anglo-Saxon verse. So they kind of took these old languages and they would translate from them or they would use old words or old verses um, from very old art forms. They were also preoccupied with material forms of literature and representative work, so books or pages as art themselves, you know, rather than, like, what's in the book. Mm. It's the actual book itself. Interesting. Right. And then the last thing is that they sought to shake up conventional art with aesthetics that they perceived to be from a long-forgotten past. Even though they saw themselves as reviving an old aesthetic, old languages, and old forms of literature, their paintings were regarded as jarring, bizarre, and avant-garde to other Victorians. Some critics called their genre medievally inspired modernism. There was nothing traditional or old-fashioned about it. If you think about it, it makes sense. It had been 400 years since the life of Raphael. Raphael was famous for his classical style, and coincidentally, the printing press was invented during his lifetime. So modern vernaculars were developed around this time as well. In many ways, it was the dawn of the modern world, Raphael's lifetime, I mean. So medieval and ancient artistic forms would have seemed very foreign to a society which had been observing classical art and reading modern vernacular languages for hundreds of years. Pre-Raphaelites brought artistic and literary forms that seemed super outdated and then used them to represent parts of modern life. The effect was so bizarre and unfashionable that it was fashionable again. This reminds me of, uh, you know, hipsters crocheting and cross-stitching and curling their mustaches with wax. (laughs) Another thing that it reminds me of is... Um, I, I recently went to an event at the Science Museum here in Buffalo, and they were having a exposition of um, taxidermists. Mm-hmm. And there was all these traditional taxidermists who were overwhelmingly male, right? And they were like, here is a deer head. Here is a squirrel. Here, you know, like normal taxidermy. Right. And then there was this young woman who has a uh, a shop like on Allen 
or on um, like in Allentown or in Elmwood or one of these like very fashionable neighborhoods. And it was all things like little tiny um, plaques with like a squirrel, a baby squirrel's head on it wearing a little jaunty cap and like holding flowers. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like these really bizarre connections between very, very old or traditional aesthetics and then updated in this very cheeky way. Right. And um, one of my favorite podcasts, My Favorite Murder, it has this like huge fan base. And um, the people who are their fans, they, they cross-stitch like murder quotes from the show or, um, you know, things that the host said during the show. Um, and one person even knitted um, an Ed Gein nipple belt for them. <laughs> That's horrible. I think I think it's funny. Um, so just think of the juxtaposition between that old lady aesthetic of like knitting mm-hmm. um, with this sort of dark modern obsession with serial murder and violence. You know, it's like so weird that it's almost cool. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So what does this have to do with tuberculosis? Um, well, the pre-Raphaelites were known for using working class models that they found in the street. They tended to choose women who were not conventionally beautiful, but they did have a particular aesthetic in mind, and it was based on their desire to shake things up, to inject the dowdy and outmoded with the modern for some shock value. In doing so, they redefined what beautiful actually meant for Victorian women. A part of this new beauty standard was the tuberculean chic. This all started with Elizabeth Sedal. Lizzie Sedal worked in a millinery shop when an artist named Walter Deverell discovered her and asked her to sit for one of his paintings. This was the beginning of her modeling career. She appears in many pre-Raphaelite paintings, most famously as Ophelia in John Everett Millay's super famous painting. Now you just have to stop and go Google it because um, it's like a woman just kind of lying in this, like, this pond covered with, you know, flowers and she has this like long trailing red hair and she's floating on the top of this little pool. Um, it's really famous. I think most people would recognize it just as having seen it around. Yeah. Even just you describing it, I sort of, um, like I had the image in my mind. I just looked it up and I, I, I have seen it before. She had an on-again, off-again relationship and eventual marriage with one of the founding artists, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. She was his muse, lover, and obsession for nearly a decade. She herself sketched, wrote poetry, and painted also during this time. And we have a lot of her artwork still. Interesting. Lizzie Sedal contracted tuberculosis as a young teenager before she began her modeling career. But her health declined dramatically after she modeled for Ophelia in 1852. Some have argued that this was because Malay had her float in a bathtub filled with tepid water for hours on end. Sounds like a real nice guy. (laughs) But it was probably just a matter of time before her tuberculosis became worse. She also suffered from an addiction to laudanum, which is a hardcore opiate. So that probably (laughs) didn't help matters much. And I I should pause here to mention, I didn't talk about it at the beginning, but um, tuberculosis is one of those illnesses that um, if you're a healthy person and you get it, it's going to, you're going to have a bad time, right? You're going to be very ill or, but it can, it, it will take a very different course if you're someone who is, already in weakened health if you're someone who's very impoverished and don't have access to good nutrition if you have a um an addiction it has a cross morbidity with those things Mm -hmm. so that makes sense to me that that was probably more it had more to do with that than the bathtub right yeah 
1860, she married Rossetti, though their relationship was still rocky. He often had affairs with other women, and they argued constantly. Lizzie manipulated him often, using her ill health to guilt him into doing whatever she wanted. And I feel like, get it, girl. But, um... They had a very passionate but very codependent relationship dancing on the line of abuse. In 1861, she became pregnant and gave birth to a stillborn daughter. She unsurprisingly fell into a deep depression. She and Rosetti were both devastated, you know, as as any parent would be, I suppose. Right. Um, she purportedly became pregnant again immediately after, but her depression and laudanum addiction were worse than ever. She died of a laudanum overdose in early 1862 at the age of, get this, 27. Oh, my God. No, I'm just kidding. She was 33. <laughs> but <laughs> but it would be really cool if she was 27. It would. <laughs> Most of the other pre-Raphaelite models were very similar looking to Elizabeth Sedal and had a similar past to her. Uh, Working-class London women such as Janet Burden, Jane Morris, Annie Miller, Fanny Cornforth, and Alexa Wilding. They were the daughters of servants, blacksmiths, butchers, day laborers, etc. Some, but not all of them, suffered from the poor health common to the working class in an industrial city. So what did the prototypical pre-Raphaelite model look like? Usually just like Lizzie's at all. Flaming red hair, large pupils, tired, heavy-lidded eyes, pale skin, Feverish, rosy cheeks and lips, shiny eyes, angular jaw, wide mouth, a tall, boyish, wasting frame, a flattened chest, long, pale neck, stooped shoulders, a bony back, long, thin limbs, and large, bony hands. One scholar describes them well as having cadaverous bodies and sensual mouths. This look became what one historian of tuberculosis calls the unhealthy, perverted symbol of romanticism. I think that Sadal looks a lot like Uma Thurman, but, like, with really dark red hair. Um, she sort of had those, like, wide-apart eyes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but just to give our listeners uh, some something to go off of before you can go Google it. Unlike Lawrence 50 years earlier, Rossetti and the other pre-Raphaelites were very effective at shaping public perceptions of the ideal woman. And this is not to say that they, that they even meant to do that, but um, their art accomplished this. This is probably due to the way that TB had been ravaging much larger numbers of people. For centuries, the ideal woman had been buxom, with a small, pert mouth, large forehead, oval face, a soft jaw, fair hair, and tiny hands and feet, all softness and gentility and fertility. They looked healthy and precious and lovely. The symptoms of TB accentuated some of these attractive features in a way that was not achievable otherwise. So we can see bits of Tuberculean fashion in the 18th century, like that Lady Manners painting that we've mentioned, but the preferred aesthetic was still within the realm of classical beauty. So in the 18th century, people just felt like tuberculosis sort of enhanced what was already considered beautiful at the time. Mm-hmm. The pre-Raphaelite models turned tuberculean chic on its head, offering a wholly new aesthetic that was tuberculean in an industrial, dark, dramatic, and romantic way. This new ideal that was emerging was in direct opposition to what had been considered beautiful in the classical past. So all of these pre-Raphaelite models tended to have those same characteristics, physical characteristics, though not all of them were particularly sickly. Lizzie Sedal, Janet Burden, and Alexa Wilding were chronically ill. Burden lived for a long time, but was often ill, and Wilding died at the age of 37 from a splenic tumor. 
Most of the other pre-Raphaelite models were healthy, hardy women, but they still had the tuberculin features that Sadal was famous for. She might have had those features because she actually had TB, but the rest of the models just so happened to have the large bony frames and flushed faces that were symptoms of the disease. So even if they didn't have tuberculosis, their faces and bodies still promoted that aesthetic. Yeah, it's really quite amazing how similar they all look. And some art historians even have a hard time figuring out which model is sitting for which painting because they really all look very similar. Slight differences in color, in in their coloration, maybe, but um, they look really similar. That's really interesting. Um, The reason that we know this new aesthetic really took off and became an ideal of beauty is this. We saw a flourishing of garment and cosmetic fashions that were aimed at making women look like they had tuberculosis. Dresses began to take on different designs. Instead of upright hourglasses with hoisted breasts and loose arms, which is common in the the late 18th century, um, the new fashion forced women to hunch over. It prevented them from lifting their arms and made their chests appear more concave and narrow. Women began trying to achieve a bony frame and long limbs rather than trying to fatten themselves up. Um, Others used cosmetics to portray a feverish complexion, shiny eyes, pallid face, and flushed cheeks and lips. As historian Carolyn Day put it at a conference I attended, beauty was the index to the heart. So she's describing how fashion and cosmetics were used to portray oneself as a certain kind of person with certain kind of personal qualities. Fashion was just as much about character and behavior as it was about appearance. So all this conversation really has been about women trying to portray this tuberculean chic in an attempt to sort of... uh, give sort of a shorthand for what kind of person they are, right? That they have the qualities of someone with tuberculosis, which was the the quiet, um, contemplative sort of character, right? Yeah. Okay. So I just want to add here um, before we end that I think this is really fascinating to me because it's really quite the opposite in the 19th century in the United States when it comes to men. Um, in the United States, tuberculosis was before tuberculosis was discovered, the tubercule bacillus, that is, it was often understood as a male disease, that men and women, of course, both got tuberculosis, but, or consumption, I should say, but it fit in with 19th century American ideals about what women should be like anyway, right? They already were weaker and quieter and more contemplative. They were inherently tapped in or tuned into the spiritual. So when women had those kinds of characteristics, they weren't sick. They were just of that kind of character. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they didn't understand that they didn't pathologize that even if they were coughing and sick, right? That was almost an extension of their femaleness. Right. And I think that's why people were trying to achieve that. They were trying to almost look like they had tuberculosis is because tuberculosis mimicked those ideal female characters, right? Right. Or characteristics, I should say. Right. Exactly. And so what happens when it's a male sufferer, I think, is really interesting in the United States because there's a lot of anxiety in the late 19th century U.S. about men living on the East Coast, working in white collar jobs, working in offices as clerks or lawyers or things like that, um, becoming effeminized by the type of work that they're doing, feeling trapped and uh, emasculated by um, their inactivity. Right. And and Mm -hmm. and um, 
lack of vigor, right, in their in their lives. They're leaving these kind of like drudgery sort of Right. Am I making sense? No, yeah. And so this spills out in a number of ways. Um, but one way is looking at men who have tuberculosis, and instead of interpreting it as this tubercul tuberculean chic, right? It's seen as um, oh my gosh, they're really sick. We need to get them a cure. And so men were encouraged to go out west, go to Denver, go to Los Angeles, um, get outside, get into nature, go out into the forests and, you know, hike or be one with, you know, be be one with the national parks um, as the national park system was was growing. And, and, you know, I you laugh, but this is part of the reason why the national parks, parks was were preserved was to ensure that we would have a place to go when the United States character was starting to weaken um, because of, you know, being stuck in the cities and stuck in offices. We wanted to make sure that we had healthful outdoor spaces where men could be men. Right. Um, And a historian named Sheila Rothman also argues that a lot of men saw working on naval vessels or on marine vessels as like quintessentially male, masculine. And so a lot of them went to the sea and, you know, joined the merchant marine and things like that in an attempt to make themselves more masculine. So almost the exact opposite of what we're talking about with women, right? That right. rather than trying to take on this tuberculean chic, they're trying to get rid of the tuberculean well, chic. And know? that's because for women, it makes you the ideal woman. But right. for men, it does not make you the ideal exactly. man. It right. makes you weak and effeminate. Right, yeah. Right. And so this is um, really fascinating to me because I, one of my, it's not something that I write about in my own work, but it's always been one of my favorite things to read about um, and teach about is the panic over the nervous disorders and diseases of the late 19th century, specifically neurasthenia. And all of the cures for neurasthenia, I'm realizing now as as I went back through this reading on tuberculosis, were the same cures for tuberculosis, right? Get outside, be hypermasculine, live what Teddy Roosevelt called the strenuous life, right? right? Like <laughs> wrestle bears and kill moose and go to war and do all these hypermasculine things. And I find this really fascinating because it seems like we have cycles of this in the in the US, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have these panics about masculinity and then we have like Ugh, football or, you know, go into the army or whatever it is. You know, we have these kind of like moments of fragile masculinity. Um, but in this case, it is specifically tied to not just a paranoia, but to a actual ailment. Right. Yeah. And I think um, it might be worth asking why the symptoms of this disease, of this communicable like bacterial infection why those symptoms, why they are the same symptoms as what was attractive in a woman. I mean, what, you know, like, what mm. was it that, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That, there's like, something very disturbing about the fact that the ideal woman was essentially a sick and dying woman. Right, right. But the ideal man was strapping and walked around in parks and had a hairy chest and ate beef or something. <laughs> Yeah, you know, right? I, you're absolutely correct. Yeah. No, I think that's really fascinating. And you see, and what's disturbing about that is that women kill themselves or slowly kill themselves in 
the effort to achieve that, right? In order to appear as though they are sick and dying, they make themselves sick and dying through mm-hmm. the um, clothing that they wear, you know, the um, corsets that were so tight that they made women physically ill or makeups and creams to whiten your face that leached in through your skin and made you, poisoned you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to to achieve that look, which looked as though you were sick, you were making yourself sick often. Right, right. And I think that this tuberculian chic, I think it's no coincidence that it became popular at a time when men were having this masculinity crisis. You know, like, it's that, that I think is my point about gender is that um, when men are feeling the least secure about their manliness – is when it's important for women to be as womanly as possible. Right. And as kind of like weak and sad and and quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Because a weak yeah. and quiet and sad woman is easy to control, is easy to domineer, right? right. That, uh, that's what the patriarchy wants, is weak and, and ineffectual women that acquiesce to right. male power. But they don't think of it that way. No, they no, no. They just think no, like, exactly. ooh, that like skinny coughing lady is sexy. Like they really, right. it's so internalized that they don't think right. of it that way. But it's interesting that that's the kind of woman that was attractive to men who were having a masculinity crisis. Yeah, that is, that really is fascinating. And, and of course, this all goes hand in hand too with industrialization and urbanization and concerns about race, suicide are all sort of you know, happening in this big stew of weirdness that is the 19th century. Right. That's why the 19th century uh, is, the is the best century. Yeah. yeah. It's you definitely know, better than the 18th century, which is stupid and dumb. When it comes to art, I have to agree. 19th <laughs> century art is my favorite because it's so it's so interesting to connect the, the 19th century aesthetic with, with what's going on. The, the, right, I mean, the cultural, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's so, like, I don't know, deep and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so deep and stuff. <laughs> so um, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you go and, and Google pre-Raphaelite painting yeah. and the painting of Lady Manners because, you know, being a podcast, it's hard to sort of convey these images. Right. I think it means so much more when you see it. We'll try to put whatever we can in terms of what we can have the copyright access to, we'll try mm-hmm. to put some of it or at least link to some things on our, um, in the show notes on the website. Uh, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We are on Instagram. We're on Pinterest. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and we have else? a super no. secret uh, tree oh, Facebook group. Yes. Um, and if you want in on that, you can just um, direct message us on Twitter or Email us at hello at digpodcast.org, um, and we will we'll just give you some backstage access yeah, to, there we go. to the, to to the podcast, lives. and we talk about episodes, and we talk about, you know, just whatever. And we share um, funny historical memes. Right, right, right. Um, also, on our website, digpodcast.org, you'll find show notes, transcripts, pictures that go along with every episode, and a lot of times um, you'll hear us talking about books that we use or that we recommend um you'll find lists of all of those books there so if you're interested in uh buying them or going to the library to borrow them that all that information is there as well and we do encourage you to do that because we rely on the work of some really fantastic historians to put right. these together and we want to support them yeah yes so we'll catch you next time peace out bye, bye.
Welcome to Dig, a history podcast.